Good morning. Thank you to Mike and Katie for doing music for us today. If you want to turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 11. And yeah, if we have any visitors this morning, we always have this uh, backdrop behind me. First Samuel chapter 11, we'll read the entire chapter this morning. Before I do that, uh, one more prayer request. If you remember this afternoon, Katie and Rob, or Carrie and Robbie are flying back from Alabama. So I'll be picking them up this afternoon. And so just please pray for safe travels for them. First Samuel 11. Then Nahash the Ammonite went up and besieged Jabesh Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, make a treaty with us and we will serve you. But Nahash, the Ammonite, said to them, On this condition I will make a treaty with you, that I gouge out all your right eyes, and thus bring disgrace on all Israel. The elders of Jabesh said to him, Give us seven days' respite, that we may send messengers through all the territory of Israel. Then, if there is no one to save us, we will give ourselves up to you. When the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul, they reported the matter in the ears of the people, and all the people wept aloud. Now behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen. And Saul said, What is wrong with the people that they are weeping? So they told him the news of the men of Jabesh. And the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words, and his anger was greatly kindled. He took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces, and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hand of the messengers, saying, Whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. Then the dread of the Lord fell upon the people, and they came out as one man. When he mustered them at Bezek, the people of Israel were 300,000, and the men of Judah 30,000. And they said to the messengers who had come, Thus shall you say to the men of Jabesh-Gilead, Tomorrow, by the time the sun is hot, you shall have salvation. When the messengers came and told the men of Jabesh, they were glad. Therefore, the men of Jabesh said, Tomorrow we will give ourselves up to you, and you may do to us whatever seems good to you. And the next day Saul put the people in three companies, and they came into the midst of the camp in the morning watch and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. And those who survived were scattered, so that not two of them were left together. Then the people said to Samuel, Who is it that said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men, that we may put them to death. But Saul said, Not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. Then Samuel said to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal and there renew the kingdom. So all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord, and there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the Almighty God. Lord, I think of the prayer requests that we have today. We have petitions that we bring to you in asking for answers to prayer. We have praises, Lord, and answers that we've seen to prayer. Lord, we have things that we bring before you knowing that you were sovereign, that you were good. Lord, we want to pray for VBS this week. Lord, beginning tonight, and we pray for these kids who are going to be part of VBS. Lord, that this be a week that is transformational for them. And Lord, I especially want to pray for 
kids who attend who might not even have a regular church home or much experience with hearing God's word. And I pray that for them especially, Lord, that we can reach them and reach their hearts and minds. Lord, I pray for that for all of the kids. And I thank you so much for people who volunteer and give up their time to help with VBS, to make it such a, a great event that the kids love. Lord, I want to pray for Dave Yergler and this tragedy in New Mexico, Lord, of, of losing a stepdaughter to gun violence. Lord, and we pray for that family. That is such an incredible loss and an incredibly difficult situation. And so, Lord, we just pray for, for comfort in the face of this terrible adversity. Lord, on that same note, we want to pray for victims of this shooting this past week in Highland Park, people celebrating Independence Day, Lord. And we think of the victims and of their families and of the countless witnesses who were nearby who had to see such a terrible scene. And so, Lord, we pray for them. We pray for people who are recovering physically, and Lord, we pray for people who are recovering spiritually and emotionally from having experienced that. Lord, we rejoice that Doug is back, back from the hospital, back home, that he's recovering, Lord, and how far he's come. And we just want to continue to pray for his recovery. And Lord, we also rejoice in the good news this week that Ethan and Aaron are engaged. And Lord, that is such an exciting time of life. And so we just pray for them in this season. And Lord, pray for your blessing on their relationship as they continue to grow and to know each other, Lord, and to prepare for their wedding. And Lord, all along the way, we pray that they can do that with you, Lord, and to your glory and growing in you. Lord, we pray for our time as we study in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. No president in American history inherited as precarious a situation as Abraham Lincoln. In response to his election to the presidency and his opposition to expanding slavery into new territories, six states had already seceded from the Union prior to him taking the oath of office in March of 1861. It took less than six weeks for the Battle of Fort Sumter and the beginning of the Civil War. When we read about Israel and the Promised Land in the Bible, I think we have a tendency to imagine Israel as if it's just one unified state. But Israel was comprised of 12 tribes who each had their own territories within the promised land, kind of like a United States of Israel. The tribes did not always get along with each other. For instance, the territory of Benjamin fought a civil war of their own in the book of Judges. In that war, the rest of Israel went to war with Benjamin. Later in Israel's history, that same Benjaminite territory would be the birthplace of King Saul. We'll have more on that later. Similar to America, there were also divisions in Israel between north and south. Saul was the first king, followed by David, followed by Solomon. By the end of Solomon's reign, Israel was a divided kingdom between north and south and never reunited. But in 1 Samuel, the even bigger threat to the flourishing in Israel were the surrounding nations. The most prominent foe of the Israelites were the Philistines. In 1 Samuel chapter 4, the Israelites had lost in battle to the Philistines, and the Philistines actually confiscate the Ark of the Covenant from the tabernacle. Eventually, the Ark is given back to the Israelites, but them and the Philistines remained hated enemies. One of the reasons why the Israelites had wanted a king 
was to have someone to lead them to victory over the Philistines. Now, at the end of chapter 10, where we were last week, Saul became king of Israel. And it was a fairly underwhelming begin to his reign. We don't see any royal actions. We don't see any great speech that he gives. Chapter 10 ends, and then chapter 11 abruptly changes to a new scene. Then Nahash the Ammonite went up and besieged Jabesh-Gilead, and all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a treaty with us, and we will serve you. So instead of the Philistines, the Israelites come under threat of another surrounding nation, the Ammonites. It's a reminder of how weak Israel was at the beginning of Saul's reign. They have foes on multiple borders. And so in this passage, we see Saul's first test as king of Israel. And it's also the high point of his reign. But it's not primarily a passage about Saul or about a battle. It's primarily a passage about God's faithfulness. With that, we'll jump into our passage this morning and we'll look at it in three scenes today. First scene, Israel under threat. I'll read verse 1 again. Then Nahash the Ammonite went up and besieged Jabesh-Gilead, and all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a treaty with us, and we will serve you. The name Nahash in Hebrew actually means servant. It's the same word that gets used in Genesis in the Garden of Eden. And he's an Ammonite. The Ammonites were cousins of the Israelites. Their genealogy is traced back to Abraham's nephew Lot having an incestuous relationship with his daughter. Genesis 19, verses 36 to 38. Thus, both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He's the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. And the Ammonites lay siege on a city called Jabesh-Gilead, which is in eastern Israel. And the citizens beg for mercy when they say, Make a treaty with us, and we will serve you. So basically what's happen, happening is that in exchange for their lives to be spared, the Israelites in Jabesh-Gilead would rather make a treaty where they are effectively vassals to the Ammonites, where they are subject to the Ammonites. Now, on the one hand, that response is understandable. If you're facing overwhelming might, wouldn't you want to do whatever you had to do to preserve life and limb, to protect your family, to protect your home? It's at least a temptation. I think most of us are kind of wired to take the path of least resistance. We want to protect ourselves and our families. So it's a very challenging situation. But the problem is that the Israelites are overlooking their covenant with God. They are a chosen people who are set apart. It is the Lord who has given them the promised land. They have a covenant with God, and it is the Lord who is meant to be the ultimate protector of Israel. Israel, in other words, does not need to make a deal with the Ammonites. What they need to do is to trust the Lord. To look at a couple of Old Testament passages which express this idea, Exodus chapter 23, verse 22. If you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say... Then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. We also see this in Deuteronomy chapter 20, verses 1 through 4. I apologize if the text is small. When you go out to war against your enemies and see horses and chariots and an army larger than your own, 
You shall not be afraid of them. For the Lord your God is with you, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And when you draw near to the battle, the priest shall come forward and speak to the people. And shall say to them, Hear, O Israel, today you are drawing near for battle against your enemies. Not let, not, let not your heart faint. Do not fear or panic or be in dread of them. For the Lord your God is he who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to give you the victory. Where are the places in our lives where we forget God's promises? I'll start with the most significant. I think for a lot of Christians, we forget that we're forgiven through the gospel. Sometimes we mess up. Sometimes we have an area of sin where we're struggling and we feel like we're constantly going two steps forward, one step back, or maybe sometimes two steps forward, ten steps back. And there can be this shame. And it's, if it's something that's really serious that we're really, really struggling with, we can feel so down about ourselves. Sometimes when we sin, we can have this tendency to want to try to atone for our own sin or resort to works or actions as if us doing something will make God love us or will make him forgive us. And you can't do that. Yes, we should repent and turn from our sins, but we cannot atone for our sins. We can't do something good to cancel out our sin. And even as Christians who believe in the gospel, I think so often the tendency can be when we're struggling and we're in the mire of sin to want to resort right back to works and what can we do? The good news of the gospel is that it has been done. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. We don't have to wallow in shame and despair. We don't have to go through life feeling like God doesn't love us every time we're struggling. And I think we can forget that sometimes, that we are not our own saviors. Jesus is, and he did it perfectly. And the promise we so often forget is that God is gracious. Not only is God gracious, but the only way to be forgiven by God is because of his grace. It's not like we have two options. There's the works option where we can try to be good enough. And then there's the grace option. And we pick and choose whichever one we want. No, the first option is not an option because we can't earn God because we can't be good enough. Once again... Don't misunderstand. I'm not saying sin doesn't matter. We should be working to kill sin in our lives. But it's not so that God can love you. God already loves you. We battle sin. We seek God so that we can live lives to God's glory. So that we can serve him and love him more fully. So that we can... Experience greater joy in God without being encumbered by sin. And so that we can live a more fulfilled life in accordance with the wisdom of God and the truth of God. We don't do righteous things because we think that that's the reason why God will love us. But again, I think that so often, even for Christians, even for people who have been walking with the Lord for a long time, we can forget that. We can't atone for our own sins. But the good news 
is that we have a Savior who did. The people in Jabesh Gilead either forget or they don't fully trust God's faithfulness to them as his people. And again, I think we can be guilty of that sometimes. And so the Israelites try to make a deal with the Ammonites. And the king gives them an absolutely absurd condition. Verse 2. But Nahash the Ammonite said to them, On this condition I will make a treaty with you, that I gouge out all your right eyes and thus bring disgrace on all Israel. Gouging out the right eye of all the male inhabitants of the city. Now, there's two reasons why Nahash would make such a demand. From the text, it says that it would bring disgrace upon them. I think that's pretty obvious. A way to shame and humiliate the people is by half-blinding them and the physical pain that that would involve. A second reason for such a request is that if they just gouged out one eye, they could still farm and thus help supply the Ammonites. But it would be much harder for them to go to battle against the Ammonites with one eye. Especially for people like archers, it would affect your depth perception. But even for swordsmen, in ancient military formations, oftentimes formations would march, you would hold the shield in your left hand, most people are right-handed, and so it would potentially obstruct the view in your left eye and the fact that you're using your right hand and left eye to try to coordinate, it's just a lot more difficult. So there is strategy behind this. But given the fact that Nahash also wanted to bring disgrace upon Israel, we see the hatred and vengeance that he has for them in his motivations for wanting to defeat them. Back in our passage, verse 3, we see a request from the Israelites to Nahash. The elders of Jabesh said to him, Give us seven days respite that we may send messengers through all the territory of Israel. Then if there is no one to save us, we will give ourselves up to you. So they ask for a reprieve of seven days. They want to see if they have any options. And it's obvious from the context of the passage that the Ammonite king agrees because messengers get sent out in the following verse. Perhaps he's overconfident or assumes that the Israelites can't possibly mobilize a force in a week. Now, I've spent a decent amount of time setting the scene. I'm going to pick the pace up a little bit for the rest of the passage. We've seen Israel's situation as they come under threat. But as I said in the beginning, this is ultimately a passage about the Lord protecting his people. And we come to our second scene. Saul responds. So the Israelites ask for seven days reprieve. They send out messengers. Verse 4. When the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul, they, res- they reported the matter in the ears of the people, and all the people wept aloud. We don't know how many messengers are sent. We don't know how wide-ranging throughout Israel the messengers are sent out. But some messengers made their way to Gibeah, the hometown of Saul, Israel's new king. I don't want to bog us down in a lot of geographical details, but there is one point that I think is worth mentioning that helps us understand the situation and the connection between Saul's hometown of Gibeah within the Benjaminite territory and Jabesh Gilead, which was under siege by the Ammonites. This will take 30 seconds. As I keep mentioning, Saul was a Benjaminite And so he lived in the Benjaminite territory. 
I mentioned in the beginning of our time that the Benjaminites had fought a civil war against the rest of the tribes. However, one area that did not participate in that war were the soldiers from Jabesh-Gilead. So in today's passage, Jabesh-Gilead is under attack, and they go to a place that they themselves had previously spared and asked for help. So you have a historical relationship that is good between these two cities. And that place just happens to be the home of a new king. And I say happens to be in quotes because it wasn't just some random coincidence. Once again, in this passage, we continue to see this theme in Saul of the providence of God. And I want to reiterate that point that I keep making, that this passage is about God's faithfulness. Here, we see it through his providential actions. Verse 5. Now, behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen. And Saul said, What is wrong with the people that they are weeping? So they told him the news of the men of Jabesh. So it just happens that these two cities had this warm relationship with each other. And it just happens to be the hometown of Saul. And now Saul just happens to pass by the messengers. People are weeping. We're not sure if the messengers even know that Saul's the king or if they know that they're in the king's hometown. He's just coming by with his livestock. But we continue to see God's divine initiative. Verse 6. And the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words, and his anger was greatly kindled. So we've seen the providence of God, and now we see the equipping of God. That the Spirit rushed upon Saul. This is something that we see numerous times in the book of Judges, where the judges are endowed by the divine spirit in times of crisis and act. And the same thing happens to Saul, and he goes to work. Verse 7. He took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hand of the messengers, saying, Whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. Then the dread of the Lord fell upon the people, and they came out as one man. If nothing else, Saul is a showman. It's pretty gruesome. Can't help but notice the discontinuity between the text and the objects behind me. Cutting up the oxen alludes to an event in the book of Judges. I won't get into that whole story right now. But he gives a stern warning. He doesn't threaten the lives of the people, but he threatens the lives of their livestock if they don't help. And it's also interesting in this verse that he invokes the name of Samuel. Saul's pretty new. Everyone knows Samuel, and people respect Samuel in Israel. He calls upon them to serve. And the verse ends by saying, they came out as one man. Saul's actions have their intended effect. And for one of the few times in the history of ancient Israel, the people are united. We come to a third scene, and we see Israel's victory. They're assembled, and they form a large army. Verse 8. When he mustered them at Bezek, the people of Israel were 300,000, and the men of Judah, 30,000. Numbers can always be a little bit difficult in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament. In English, our word for thousand refers to a number, refers to a numerical value. 
The Hebrew word that is translated as thousand can mean more than one thing. It can mean thousand, how we think of a thousand, but it can also mean things like military units. So it may or may not have been 300,000 men, but either way, it's a large group. It's a, a vast army that the Israelites have assembled. Also noteworthy in this uh, verse that it gives you the numbers for Israel and then gives you the numbers separately for Judah, the southern kingdom. So already showing some distinction between the north and the south. The news of this army is shared with the Israelites who were besieged in Jabesh Gilead, verse 9. And, this, and they said to the messengers who would come, Thus shall you say to the men of Jabesh Gilead, Tomorrow, by the time the sun is hot, you shall have salvation. When the messengers came and told the men of Jabesh, they were glad. And so they give their response to the Ammonite king, verse 10. Therefore, the men of Jabesh said, Tomorrow we will give ourselves up to you, and you may do to us whatever seems good to you. Now in the Hebrew, that wording is actually a little bit cryptic. The ESV translates as, we will give ourselves up to you. That makes it sound like they're going to surrender. The ESV commentary on 1 Samuel says more literally what they're saying is, we will come out to you. Which has a bit of a double meaning. Where the Ammonites could have, think, could have thought that they were coming to surrender. But in reality, they would be coming out to go to battle. Verse 11 the battle is recorded. And the next day, Saul put the people in three companies, and they came into the midst of the camp in the morning of the morning watch and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. And those who survived were scattered, so that no two of them were left together. Again, this is a passage where a battle happens, but it's not really a passage about the battle itself. It gets summarized in one verse. Saul divided his men, and they surround the Ammonites. And so we see some, some skill in planning on the part of Saul. And the Israelites have a decisive victory. No two of them were left together. The Ammonites are decimated. More attention is actually given to the aftermath of the victory than to the battle itself. To explain the end of this chapter, we need to remember the end of the chapter from last week. I didn't talk about it a ton at the time. But after Saul becomes king in chapter 10, he returns home. And chapter 10 ends by mentioning that there were some who were enthusiastic about the new king. And there were others who were not. Chapter 10 verses 26 and 27. Saul also went to his home at Gibeah, and with him went men of valor whose hearts God had touched. But some worthless fellows said, how can this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no present, but he held his peace. After the victory, people wanted to round up those detractors who had been less enthusiastic about Saul and have them executed. Back in chapter 11 now, verse 12. Then the people said to Samuel, Who is it that said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring them in that we may put them to death. But we see grace on the part of Saul. Verse 13. But Saul said, Not a man shall be put to death this day. For today 
The Lord has worked salvation for Israel. As I said in the beginning, this is the high point of the reign of Saul. For a brief moment, Israel had the king that they wanted. Saul could have been vengeful to his detractors, but chose grace instead. He could have hogged the glory. But he gives credit to where credit is due when he says that it was the Lord who had worked salvation for Israel. All is well. There's a celebration. It's like when a team hires a new general manager or a new coach. Maybe it's a team that has struggled. And it takes a few years and they build up and they get a little bit better and a little bit better and a little bit better. And then finally, they win the championship. But really, it's like a culmination of the last several years of what they've been working towards. The Cubs come to mind when they won the World Series in 2016. They had hired a general manager who had won in Boston. And again, it took a few years, but finally they got to their ultimate goal. Just like the Cubs, Israel will start to descend after that. Verse 14. Then Samuel said to the people, come, let us go to Gilgal and there renew the kingdom. So all the people went to Gilgal and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord. And there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. So the Israelites have had this great victory. They're carrying around Saul on their shoulders, probably. The prophet Samuel suggests that they go to Gilgal and renew the kingdom. Throughout this sermon, I keep beating the drum that it's a passage about God's faithfulness to his people. Why should they renew the kingdom when they just installed Saul as king? I think John L. McKay argues convincingly that the renewal of the kingdom in light of this great victory is not about Saul. That Samuel, the prophet, is seeking to renew the covenant of the kingdom that they have with the Lord who has given them the victory. Gilgal was mentioned last week. It's the place where Saul became king. It's also the place where Joshua built the first altar to the Lord within the promised land after the Israelites had crossed the Jordan River. In renewing the kingdom at Gilgal, it is trying to tie Israel's past and Israel's future together. God's past faithfulness to Israel and a future with God who has made its covenant promises to Israel. In this passage, you have God's providence for his people in bringing the messengers to the new king. You have God's equipping of Saul and endowing Saul to be led by the Spirit. You have Saul giving credit to God when Israel has the victory. And you have Samuel's desire to renew the covenant and to go to a sacred place where they will remember the promises of the Lord. And there are also ways in which this passage fits into the overall story of the Bible. Briefly, to give three reasons. First, this event preserves the promised land. Second, this passage shows the pinnacle of the reign of Saul. Things will begin to go downhill after this. Chapter 12 is Samuel giving a speech where he's warning the Israelites about the institution of the monarchy. Then in chapters 13 and 14, 
we see Saul make some pretty catastrophic failures and sins. But on this day, after this battle, Saul has done something good for his people. Like I said in the beginning, there was not always unity among the tribes of Israel. Before this, there hadn't been a king over all of Israel. But Saul had rallied the troops. And people celebrate this accomplishment. People can do good things and ultimately not be godly people. We see that from Saul's story. All is well, at least for a little while. But what we see as Saul's reign continues will be his struggles of sin and disobedience. Third, this passage is a picture of what a good king looks like in ruling Israel. There are a lot of kings in the Old Testament. We do not see lots of snapshots of them doing good things. It's interesting that in the New Testament, at the time Jesus came into the world, many expected the Messiah to be this great military leader. And part of the reason is for chapters like this. We observe Saul leading a great military conquest. But in these Old Testament passages which deal with kings, they're also pointing forward to the true king. Saul was a king who ruled for a season until he fell. Jesus is the king who never fell. For the Israelites, they wanted to place their faith in a man. And again, I think that's a temptation that we often face. I mentioned this last week. Sometimes we're guilty of doing this with our political leaders. Our society lifts up its preferred candidates and politicians and acts as if it is them who have the answers. That they are the ones who have the keys to a better world. Even as Christians, if we're not careful, we can fall into that trap. And it's definitely a point that I've made numerous times before, but I think it's one that needs to continue being said. Because we're living in a time where our society makes everything political. Products that we buy that have nothing to do with politics somehow are politicized. Soft drinks and candy bars. Sports, something most of us, if we're being honest, do to kind of escape the realities of the world, are politicized. Entertainment, education, on and on. Our society makes everything about politics. And if we're not setting our minds on the things above, if we're not focusing on walking with God and devoting ourselves to him daily, we're being fed far more messages about the importance of the political world than we are about the value of God. That's what our society is inundating us with. So as Christians, what we have to do is to be proactive in filling our minds with God, in going to God, and praying to God, and walking with God. We're not so different from the Israelites. We can be just as tempted to put our faith in people. And as always, my point isn't that these things are unimportant, or that we should be apathetic. But it must be observed in its proper place. Because God is still our king. People want to put faith in men. But this passage is another reminder that the Lord is the true king. That he is the one who is ruling over his creation. And who is sovereign over the nations of the world. Including our own. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, once again, we just thank you for your goodness and grace. And may we take these passages to heart. May we be pointed to you. 
In Jesus' name, amen.